If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Welcome to this election night. Whoa, completely unnecessary podcast for Tuesday, November 8th, 2016. I'm Pat Contry and I'm flying solo because my partner Ian Ferguson is feeling under the weather. But do not fret. We have, well, lots of retro gaming news, you know, smattered with a little bit of modern gaming, maybe a political topic because Ian's on here, so I can get away with it. Ha 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 ha! What we got going on in the show, we're talking about the NES Classic Edition on the way, Tectoid coming out with the new Sega Genesis, more GameStop retro game story horror, a new Neo Geo MVS flash cart, your Q&A. But first, we have a sponsor, well, quite a few, but... Need a website? Why not do it yourself with Wix.com? No matter what business you're in, Wix.com has something for you. Used by more than 84 million people worldwide, Wix.com makes it easy to get your website live today. You need to get the word about your business? Well, it all starts with a pretty good-looking website, if not a stunning one, with hundreds of designer-made customizable templates to choose from, the drag-and-drop editor. There's no coding required. You don't need to be a programmer. You don't need to know HTML or Java or whatever else. Uh, to create something beautiful. You can do it all yourself with Wix.com. Wix.com empowers business owners to, to create their own professional websites every day. When you're running your own business, you're bound to be busy. Too busy. Too busy worrying about your budget. Too busy scheduling appointments. Too busy to build a website for your business. But you need one. And because you're too busy, it has to be easy. And that's where Wix.com c- comes in. With Wix.com, it's easy and free. Go to Wix.com to create your own website today. The result is stunning. So, what's going on? It is election night out there. Now, this is not a political podcast. We've been kind of veering on the CU podcast the past few weeks into political topics here and there. Uh, and, you know, social topics as well with uh, trash like Devin Faraci. Uh, and then that weird weird Casey Neistat video that I'm glad, you know, most people agreed with Ian and I that was kind of ridiculous for a big YouTuber to not only come out and endorse a political candidate, nothing wrong with that, but then to ask followers to go out and shame other YouTube content creators into revealing who they were voting for? Ah, we don't live in a banana republic, do we? We don't want to force people to disclose who they're voting for, voting for so we can intimidate them or do something nasty. That's not what democracy is all about. That's not what America is all about. But it is election night. So I'm going to say this. I tweeted out a few things about my thoughts about the election before. I was just on a podcast with uh, Brent Black, uh, a.k.a. Brennan Floss, last week, talking about this political cycle in particular. This is what we have to deal with. It looks like there's, like uh, according to 538, about a 70% chance of Hillary Clinton uh, being the next president versus Donald Trump. Whoever wins on November 9th, the day you're hearing this, it should have been decided by then unless there's going to be some very close states, which it looks like <laughs> it looks like really, really early on that there could be at least two states that are going to be razor thin in terms of the margins. We have to get through this. This is not a sports game. America. It should not be a war between two sides. This is not the 1860s anymore. P- 
politics is not a zero-sum game. Some people were tweeting that out. What that means is there's not it's not a it's not a tug of war between two sides, and the more you give up, the less you get. That's not what most political issues are, and that's not what most people in terms of their beliefs and what they want in life, that's not how it plays out. We all have families, we all have people we love, we all have hopes and dreams and aspirations. That's true across the board. And most Americans will agree on certain things, or at least a chunk of them. But the way it is with these two uh, parties, you're not really given that option to come to sort of agreement. It's not to the benefit uh, most of the time for the two political parties to come through some sort of compromise. It's, it's almost as if the media likes to. I'm not going to be on all the go on the whole media's evil thing, but the media likes ratings, and the media likes there to be this much competitiveness between basically two sides of the nation. When you look at it, you know, 45 percent for one candidate, 42 or three percent for the other. They like that. They don't want a blowout. They don't want uh, 70 percent for one uh, candidate and 30 percent for the other. There's no ratings there. At the, and at the end of the day, that's what CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, uh, ABC, NBC, that's what they care about is ratings. So that said, those people down the street, those neighbors, those family members even that have different political beliefs than you on election night, they'll still be your neighbors, your family members, your your loved ones, your friends, they will still exist on November 9th. So we have to find a way to come together. This isn't just a kumbaya, you know, I wish everyone could could agree on everything. That's not what, it, what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this sort of vicious, divisive, uh, toxic campaign cycle cannot continue bleeding into our everyday lives or else we're not going to get anything done and we'll never able, never be able to get to a sort of a... a, a uh, common core uh, of of beliefs and how we should even strive to go forward let alone let alone the actual sort of uh methods of doing that we have to at least believe that we can come to compromise that two sides can agree on something like someone tweeted oh I th- it's his real some game uh because i tweeted out you know don't give in to tribalism the us versus them mentality because what when that happens then you are guaranteeing Nothing gets done. Nothing gets accomplished. That we are as bad as what everyone makes us out to be. Especially the rest of the world looking at us like we're fucking idiots. That we're like, we're playing a game of dodgeball against each other. Just just throwing uh, volleyballs into each other's faces and groins. And we, we, and we are metaphorically doing that in an election like this. So we have to get past this. However we do that. You start with the common beliefs... And on many topics, there is agreement, whether it's reform of the justice system, whether it's uh, gun laws, uh, whether it's medical marijuana, whether it's you know cutting the deficit, uh, growing the economy, uh, e- even even something as divisive as as uh, energy, where you know one side thinks, uh, oh, you're going to destroy the environment, and the other side's like, well. We don't think we're destroying the environment, but you're going to take our jobs because of your, because you think we're destroying the environment. There's always some sort of commonality in between those two extremes. You know, uh, we just have to get there. We just have to find it. We have to just work towards it. We have to believe that we are good enough to do that at least. If we don't believe that we can get along with one another, if if we if, if we automatically demonize the other side 
just because they hold different beliefs and not even in everything, just in, in certain aspects. It, it's like it's like being married to someone or having a girlfriend or boyfriend. If you can get to like 70% agreement, that's pretty good for most things. And I, and I think, honestly, that's where we are on a lot of topics. You're not going to agree on everything, but you start with what you have in common. It's it's like doing a, you know any sort of negotiation for video games. I'm trying to bring back the video games before you all click off on this podcast. When you're negotiating for a large deal, you you know two sides you have the seller and you have the buyer and you and you're going through the cost of the games there's going to be game prices you disagree with there always is so for example looking at my shelf here someone has a copy of i don't know doctor chaos you know an uncommon game and they're saying well i think it's worth uh, 18 dollars and the and the buyer's like well i only think it's worth 7 bucks so that doesn't mean they can't negotiate for the other games in the stack because they disagree in that one. What that means is they can put that one aside for now and then move on to a game like, uh, let's see, uh, Ghosts and Goblins. Well, I think that game's worth uh, $12. Well, I think it's worth 10 Okay, how about we uh, go with 11 Okay, we got that done. Well, how about a game like uh, The Great Waldo Search? I think it's worth $10. I think it's worth 8 All right, how about we settle on 10 Sounds cool. Put that on the stack. Those two things are done. So not to simplify the political system, but if the size thought like that, let's get done the stuff that we are close on at least and not, you know, a huge valley apart. The American people would have a lot more faith in not just the system, but in Congress in general. But right now you have people just looking at, well, you know, we disagree on that gun knack price. You think it's worth 150 I think it's only worth 50 or we're too far apart, so we're not going to do any negotia- negotiations or anything else. That's bullshit. But that's how things are operating right now, and it's a sort of weird, toxic environment uh, going on in politics right now that's making it worse. So remember that. Start with the commonality. With any negotiation or in politics, because politics is just negotiation and compromise. That's all it is, and, and building coalitions. Well, I can't believe I just uh, try to spin off the election night into video game negotiations, but I think I might have done it successfully. I don't know. So don't worry. The world's not going to end if Clinton's elected. The world's not going to end if Trump's uh, elected. Hell, the world didn't end with a fucking civil war, and I don't think we're going to go that route. We're not going to get our muskets again and start shooting at each other. Then again, I might be wrong. So uh, the 7th <laughs> annual NES Marathon's coming up the weekend of... 11th, what is that? November 12th and 13th. Uh, benefiting the Children's Miracle Network. Go to nesmarathon.com for your uh, information, informative purposes, and also to donate to the Children's Miracle Network. Uh, it's a 501c verified nonprofit. We don't see the money. Uh, it's always the Children's Miracle Network, which brings me to an announcement. Unfortunately, uh, this year is going to be a little bit different just because uh, Ian is feeling under the weather. For the podcast appearance, he also, uh, as of now, when I'm recording this on election night, November 8th, will not be joining me, unfortunately, in participating in the 7th Annual NES Marathon. Uh, Can't do anything about that. It's a shame. We will, though, we will, though, have some people filling in here and there as best we can. It's sort of a last-minute thing. I'm going to try to cobble it together because there's no way I can do this by myself in terms of playing NES games for 24 hours by myself. Hell, I still need at least a nap in there somewhere. But also taking the donations and game requests, interacting with the audience, and trying to be somewhat entertaining at the same time. 
Uh, I can't do that by myself. So there will be at least one special guest, if not two, and maybe a third. Well, Frank's a special guest anyway. He always is good to show up on Sunday morning, right? So do not fear. It'll still be a nice NES marathon. It'll still be lots of fun. There'll still be prizes. There'll still be, well, giveaways, not prizes. Yeah, giveaways. Uh, there'll still be wacky NES game challenges. I'll still be there with my wacky hair. And I should be, in theory, better shaped than last year. But who knows, because I'm exhausted from uh, Syracuse the last weekend. And um, going to four conventions in the past five weeks. And I'm not sure I can go through that again. Obviously, this is sort of like the book tour right now and getting it out there and selling it and, uh, you know, hugging hugging hands and shaking babies. Wait, wait, the opposite, right? Yeah, got that mixed up. Uh, but doing uh, co- conventions and doing these panels, it's fun. It just wears you down because there's no downtime and traveling's rough. Uh, I had a 15-hour travel day uh, a few weeks ago that killed me absolutely killed me uh and then coming back it was almost as long and then you go to portland next weekend and that was that's a whole other story for another time uh portland retro gaming expo running around trying to get rid of the extra books i had and then going from that having a week off in between thank god and then going to to syracuse last weekend but i love meeting you guys uh you bring a smile on my face i love hearing that you like the book or you like the podcast or asking about frank and what he's up to it really makes it worth it so uh, I'm exhausted. This isn't a, a pity party, but I am exhausted physically and mentally. I tweeted that out. Um, I can't go much longer like this. I, I, I always think I'm more resilient than I am. I mean, I am pretty resilient, but I think I'm coming to that point where my body's going to give out if my mind doesn't. So I, I will make it through the weekend. We're going to have an awesome NES marathon uh, that I'll sort of reassess going forward then what I'm going to be doing with my YouTube channel in terms of writing, um, seeing, you know, what the future holds there. Obviously, still do the Pat the NES Punk videos, but I need to take a break at some point uh, because I haven't taken one in, like, four years, really. And, uh, but yeah, thanks for support with the book. It's at ultimatenes.com. Makes a great Christmas gift. And, uh, yeah, let's move on to our first topic. This is where I have a transition, like if I was on CNN. New state result coming in. Uh, <laughs> Pat wins Pennsylvania. Okay. So the NES Classic Edition is coming out on Friday the 11th. People are really abuzz about this. Remember, it's going to have 30 built-in NES games. Um, it's really small and cute when I saw it at Comic-Con. It's about, you know, it's it's literally the width just about of an NES controller. And it comes with an NES controller. That, you know, has a short core, but I'll get to that in a bit. Uh, but it's modeled just like the original NES controller. It'll have 30 games. It'll have three different display modes. You have the original CRT with the scan lines, like your old-fashioned old wood RCA TV. You're going to have your 4.3, which is, you know, just the shape of an old TV without the scan lines. And Pixel Perfect, which is more of a square, closer to a square which is what if you're playing an emulator, that's always an option, but that's not how we used to see it on our TV. And you're going to have your save states, and you're going to have five per game, and you're going to have your QR uh, scan codes in order to look at the manuals on your phone, which is an awesome idea. So uh, early reviews are coming in. I want to talk about the IGN review real quick. Uh, the IGN review was a, was a good review. It was not a great review. Kind of shocked by that. Uh, so it was back a 7.6 out of 10 on there. So what surprised me there was that the short length 
of the cord on the NES controller is what really peeved them the most. Really was the only uh, downsize, or downside, I should say, to, to this system. So it comes with the one controller. Extra one's available, available for 10 bucks. Remember, this is the same port that you see on the Wii U and the Wii. That's sort of like, uh, it's hard to describe the, the shape there, but, you know, you know when you see it. It's not an NES port. So that means it's compatible with, you know, like the Wii U, you know, like those uh, controllers, like the the classic controller plus, things like that. So that was the complaint, was that the cables are about two and a half feet. So that means you're going to have your NES, you have to have your NES close to you, not just because of the short cable, but also because you need the, the buttons available on the system in order to go back to the main menu. The reviewer, unfortunately, forgot that the compatibility with other controllers, like the classic Pro Controller, means that you don't need that, because <laughs> that has a much longer cable, and there's a lot more buttons on the Classic Pro, which will enable, enable you like the start and home buttons, the home buttons, I should say, the, you know, the plus and minus, all that. You'll be able to get back to the menu and play other games. So not, not the biggest sort of uh, downside there. Now the question still remains, will this get into people's hands? We are, was it, two weeks out from Thanksgiving, Black Friday is going to be big. People, you know, throwing elbows, getting into Best Buy early, running each other, running each other over with shopping carts. It's always fun that footage. Always fun. That's really worth the risk. You know, you want to get twenty bucks off a toaster, and you risk, you know, getting an eye gouged out by an old lady looking to get five bucks off a hair dryer. It's fantastic. So the thirty games, I won't go through them all again. But you have, you know, the Super Mario Bros. trilogies, Zelda one and two, Kirby's Adventure, Tecmo Bowl, Punch Out, minus Mike Tyson. Uh, Final Fantasy. These are some really good games. And again, if you're listening to this, this is <laughs> my audience. This is not the. This is ne- this is not necessarily not necessarily for you. It's marketed towards you, but it's also marketed towards the millions of other people that don't aren't into retro gaming. Going through that again. So this is going to sell a ton. The problem, though, is that if you look up, <laughs> if you look up right now where to pre-order it from, you're kind of limited to nothing. <laughs> if I looked, the last time I looked it up, I think a couple days ago, nothing Best Buy, nothing on Amazon. GameStop doesn't have it. But, and the word is that GameStop's going to have only like five per store, which is insane. So already you have scumbag sellers online trying to scalp this. NES Classic Edition. Typing it into eBay. Yeah, 125 bucks, 180 bucks, 133 bucks. Of course, no one really has this in hand yet, but that's a whole other conversation. Uh, unless you got, unless Nintendo sent you one, and I saw people tweeting out that they, they received one. Uh, Pat didn't get one, but that's a whole other conversation. Uh, so, they're selling. People are spending 133 bucks on these. I, I think, I think you got to be careful, obviously. Nintendo's going to pump out more of these. Hopefully it happens by early December where they realize, whoa, these are selling well. Nintendo likes to hedge their bets, obviously, but it's really strange why they're going to do that. It's, it's almost as if they are they have no one in marketing to gauge how successful their marketing's been. It's, it's like they're not doing any any you know market research to gauge interest with the general public. That's the only thing I can think of. You know, this thing was announced back in, what, July? So they've had a good three and a half, four months to pump these out, get the production production line going, 
but they're still going to fall short, at least for the first probably, I'd say, two to three weeks. Now, Nintendo does do a good job of catching up eventually. Uh, they did that with the Amiibo, so collect- collectors that went into w- with the Amiibo all, all lost their shirt because they're all worthless now. Obviously, with the Wii, they eventually pumped out a- enough. The Wii U, they pumped up a- pumped out a lot right away, so much so that the scalpers got hosed on that, thankfully. So, will you be able to get one? Yeah, sure. Before Christmas, I hope. <laughs> we all hope because, I, you know, we don't want the scalpers to win. Absolutely not. So, Nintendo's going to be celebrating the release of the NES Classic Edition in a few different ways. They're going to be doing an NES Charity Marathon. Oh, no, wait, that's me. That's me on November 12th and 13th at NESMarathon.com, benefiting the Children's Miracle Network. That's me. No. What is Nintendo doing? For three days only, they're bringing back, like, their Nintendo, like, tips line, the power line. Uh, so the number is going to be uh, 425-885-7529 from 6 a.m. to 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, which I'm guessing is what that was back in the day. I don't know. Uh, I, my parents would never let me call, you know, a number to get tips. You know, you had, remember, you had long distance back then, not just, even just 900 numbers. You had long distance you had to uh, get charged for on landline. So the recorded tips for several games, plus behind-the-scenes stories from original gameplay counselors. I already know at least one person that plans on calling this up and recording everything on here during that weekend for posterity. And I think a lot of people will do that. I think it'll be cool, especially if they're original tips that they sort of saved. So uh, the social media is going to be taken over. It's going to be hashtag yesterday. Uh, ooh, I might be able to use that for the NES Marathon. <laughs> and they're going to try to, I guess, do a go back to a time when there was no social media and just trading, it says, according to this, uh, trading passwords and game tips on the school bus. That's a time they're trying to go back to with Twitter, I guess, and Facebook. I'm not sure how it's going to work. And if you go to the, the Nintendo New York store, um, there's going to be a retro 80s event, which I think is awesome. 80s themed launch event. So, Going back to October 85, I guess, with the first 250 visitors able to play classic NES games, participate in a costume contest, uh, dressed as their favorite Nintendo characters. <laughs> and they're even going to have a retro Nintendo game show. Oh, Pat's missing out on that. Damn it, I wish I was still in New Jersey just for that. Uh, and then Doug Bowser, who is, that's not a made-up name, Nintendo of America's Senior VP of Sales and Marketing. Many of us have fond and wonderful memories of the original NES. With these launch activities for the NES Classic Edition, we want to replicate the nostalgic feelings of sitting down and playing the NES with your family for the first time. Hey, Doug, I got an idea how to do that. Make more of them. Make more. Make enough NES Classic Editions so that people don't have to go to scalpers on eBay. Have GameStop stock 30 or 40 or 50 per store and not five. Put it in the word there, buddy. No, it's not up to you entirely, buddy, but, you know, I think you can do it. Uh, so that's that's all i got to say on this. Let me know in the comments if you're still excited for it, or if you're turned off by the, the lack of pre-sales. I kind of am. I, I did order the book, not a certain NES guidebook, but the Playing With Power book on Amazon. So I'll have that ready to go. I'll have that ready to go <laughs> even before... Um, getting the system. And the other thing on Amazon I, I forgot to bring up last time on the podcast uh, when it was both Ian and myself. Ian's sick, by the way. I know you're going to be asking for the next two weeks when these segments come out. Um, they're coming out with like a collector's carrying case, which is so cute for the NES Classic Edition. And that's available on Amazon. I believe it's like 20 bucks. Uh, yes, it's the NES Classic Edition carrying case. Uh, it's on Prime. 
It's adorable. It's adorbs. It fits. It looks like two controllers. Uh, remember, the classic edition comes with one. Two controllers, a system, and it looks like a little space for... I don't know. It's like a, for maybe for the USB cable that it's powered by. It's almost like an AC power supply space, but there's no AC adapter for this. It's going to be a, uh, a USB, or maybe for the HDMI cable as well. Either way, it's a cute. It's adorbs. If I say that again, shoot me. And I'm going to order that before I even get the system so I have it ready to go. So again, check out the NES Marathon. It'll be the weekend of November 12th and 13th. And uh, I can piggyback on that hashtag of NES. And was it NES yesterday? Huh. Doesn't have quite the ring to it as NES Marathon does it. So speaking of old, old, old consoles that are coming back because... Remember Sega Genesis? Tectoy in Brazil is producing a brand new Sega Genesis system. Now, you're not, if you're not familiar with Tectoy, these are the guys that, in Brazil, you know, produce the Master System, and I guess they called it the Mega Drive down there, which was the European and Japanese name for the Sega Genesis. Uh, Tectoy pretty much is a reason why... Uh, in South America, especially Brazil, Nintendo never really caught on, and Sega's huge. So, Tectoy brought the Mega Drive and Master System over to Brazil, even before the NES came there, before Nintendo got sort of their foot in there. Which is sort of what happened in Europe as well, is that the NES took too long to get uh, to Europe, and never really got a good distribution line going over for most part. So that's why the NES is sort of an not uncommon system, but you know you're talking about the BBC Micro, you know Commodore, Amiga systems, ZX, ZX or ZX Spectrum being the more popular gaming choices uh, for the 80s and early 90s versus the NES. So Tectoy, according to Wikipedia, had an 80% market share of the Brazilian market when it came to video games. That's not quite the 90% that the Nintendo had with the NES in the late 80s, but that's, well, that's almost. Ooh, that's pretty good. So the Master System in Brazil was going strong until like the late 90s. If you, in the U.S., it, it sucked monkey, uh, monkey balls. Monkey balls or donkey balls? It sucked whatever ball you prefer in the U.S. because it, it never really caught on, and they sort of swiped it to the side and went to the Genesis. Genesis. But in Brazil... It was hugely popular. I mean, I mean, Tectoy even put out like a, a, a pink Master System, I guess, for the female market, for the for girls to play. You know, pink NES would have been cool. Anyway, so they had stuff like Sonic Two and Sonic Three and Streets of Rage uh, in Brazil. I need to bring up a, a list of uh, Master System games in Brazil. So it would make sense if you have something like the NES Classic Edition coming out in the U.S. to have a, not a full equivalent, because I'll get into why in a second it's not, but having the hugely popular system in Brazil, one of the biggest countries in South America, have their version come out. So it's going to be their own Mega Drive, or Sega Genesis, but we'll just call it Sega Genesis for ease here. It's a Genesis that looks like the same exact shell, very similar. Um... It's going to have 22 built-in games. They call them pre-programmed. There's going to have internal flash memory. 
Uh, you're going to have 22 games. I'll get into uh, a few in a second. But what's important here, and this is why it's not the NES Classic Edition for two reasons. It's going to be not HDMI compatible. It's going to have an SD card reader that's going to be able to load the 22 pre-programmed games. Oh, and any more you want to add. Oh, okay. Interesting. See, one report I didn't see this having an SD card reader, which means they're not concerned about piracy at all. Very interesting. Wow. Um, But this is going to have a cartridge slot for your Master System. Excuse me, not Master System. (laughs) <laughs> for your Genesis slash Mega Drive games. Well, I guess if you have a power-based converter, it's also for your Master System games as well. So you can, you can say, Pat, what's the big deal? At Games has had their crappy uh, Genesis clone consoles out for the past, like, five, six years. That is true. Hell, you can buy them anywhere. Uh, retro game shops. Uh, you can go to Walmart. Freaking Bed Bath & Beyond carries these stupid things with built-in games and even a cartridge slot. However, those are all Genesis or Mega Drive on a chips. Those are basically shoddily done emulators on a chip, which is why you don't get close to 100% game compatibility. The sound is off. Ian could go into more detail if he was here right now about them. But that's not what you want if you actually want to get an authentic Sega Genesis experience. But according to these reports, is that this tech toy Mega Drive is going to have Sega Genesis guts. That's big. That is really big. It's going to be using, according to its FAQ, frequently asked questions out there, uh, quote-unquote, computer components that are close to the original console's guts as possible. That is That means the price is going to be higher, obviously, than like a cheap at-games $40 Genesis. But, hell, if you want the actual experience again... Why not? Go out and buy it. Go out and buy it. It comes with one controller. Again, no HDMI. It's going to have AV composite. It's going to cost around roughly 125 US. You might balk at that price, but again, if you're using real hardware, real, you know, if you're using the actual sound chips, graphics processor, Genesis processor, it's going to cost money. A lot more you have to throw in there than a Genesis on a chip. Now, I have no interest in this. You might not, but if you know if you're in Brazil and this was quote unquote your NES back then in the '90s, oh, you're gonna love this if you can't get your hands on a, on a normal console. Um, absolutely. According to SegaNerds.com, <laughs> it's going to have the following games in memory. So now I'm not sure now. Okay, so they are going to be built in, but it will also have an SD card reader. Okay, that makes a lot more sense than having a card you got to insert to play the games, right? I think so. So I'm guessing you turn it on, it's going to have a menu. You're going to get on this, you're going to get Alex Kidd. I'm guessing, uh, would they have Enchanted Castle on the Genesis? Could be that one. Uh, Alien Storm, Altered Beast, Arrow Flash, not familiar, Bonanza Brothers, Columns, Decap Attack, E-Swat, Fatal Labyrinth, Flicky, so if you're following, these are a lot of first-party games. Uh, Gain Ground, not familiar. Golden Axe 1 and 3. Jewel Master, Kid Chameleon, Last Battle, Outrunners, which is an excellent game in the arcade. I never played the Genesis one. That was an Outrun sequel that you can uh, select different cars. Sega Soccer, Shadow Dancer, 
Shinobi 3. Wait a minute, was it which one was Shadow Dancer? Shadow Dancer was Shinobi 2, right? <laughs> Sonic 3 and Turbo Outrun. You get the uh, uh, the AC adapter, the 1-3 button, joypad, and you get the composite cable, uh, compatible. Uh, it's a, Obviously, it's a PAL region, South America. PAL-M, composite. Uh, there's, there's a little headphone volume control like the original. Uh, and it goes into the details there. So th- this is Tech Toy saying, screw it, we're going to put out a cool console that's close as, as close to the original as we can can get in this day and age, and it's going to cost 125 bucks. So a lot of you out there are probably going to wish Nintendo's going to do it. Ain't never going to happen uh, for Nintendo for lots of reasons why. Uh, mainly because they make so much sales on the virtual console games and on the 3DS. You know, there's no reason for them to do that, and especially including SD slot. You know. But, uh, all right, I'm interested. I'd be interested in trying one out, but we'll have to see if if there's some method to import them from Brazil. It may not be easy to do that. All right, who's going to be next? Hey, NEC, where are you? Putting out your TurboGrafx remake system. You can actually sell a decent amount. There's only, like, 2,000 people interested in TurboGrafx-16, though. But, you know, you can make some some money. Why not? So, GameStop, now nationwide, they're, they're taking in those retro video games. They're doing it. They're going for it. And uh, we've spoken on the past before about nine or ten times about games being shipped out to people from the huge retro game GameStop headquarters that were either totally counterfeit, swap games on the inside, what have you. Which before wasn't going to be an issue just because before the, um, the supply was going to be small. You know, you had the Alabama, Louisiana region, and the New York City region that were was, was testing this out, uh, accepting trade-ins for uh, you know for most of the major retro game systems of the '80s and '90s. The only ones off the top of my head that it was not accepting uh, was like Master System. You know, they, they were they did they did start accepting uh, Saturn, so you had most of the '80s and '90s covered. But now they're going nationwide. Every store you can trade in your games. <sighs> All right. Why is that a problem? It's a problem because they're not training the employees to watch out for, one, if these games even work, but two, if they are the games that the people claim they are, if they're counterfeit or what have you. So I'm bringing to attention a video. Uh, his name is John. His channel is Gaming Through the Decades. And he spoke to me on Facebook Getting permission to show the video, you know, on this video. Is this a video or a podcast? It's fair use to show the video, but he was cool to give me permission to do whatever I want and show it in its entirety or what have you to sort of spotlight the problem. So, what John did was he brought some Genesis games, about five or six, to a GameStop. The, he wanted to see what would happen if, if he brought a Musha, one of the most coveted Genesis games. Luth goes anywhere between, I don't know, 175 and $200 just for the cartridge. And so he got a, you know, $5 AliExpress special. Got the game, and he got on his nice Path the NES Punk Flea Market Madness 2010 era spy glasses, and went to his local GameStop, uh, encountered the employee who explained to him the program, was very nice, and this is not going to be, I'm not going to try to bash the employee here for a few reasons I'll get into in a bit. But, he gave him the stack of games. Looks like there's an Animaniacs in there, and I can't really tell the other ones. 
besides the Musha that was identified. And he proceeded to price them out. And he said, I cannot accept most of these. They're not on the list in our system, which means they are trying to be very selective and only go for a few uh, that they think they're going to make money on, which is fine. It's not fine, though, when those are the ones that be the most likely to be counterfeited, but we'll get into that in a second. So, rejected some, said, okay, we'll give you 28 in cash for Musha, and then where's your ID so we can ring this up? Now, the ID is, ID, getting that, if you're you're pawning anything, going to a a pawn shop, or technically technically any retro game store, is supposed to take in your ID uh, in case they have to report theft. So, technically... Uh, I'm not sure how many retro game shops do this. You're, you're technically not, in most states, depending upon the law, you're not allowed to just take a game that's brought in and yet you buy from a customer, turn around, p- throw a price sticker on it, and put it on the shelf to sell. There's usually a waiting period in between. I forget what it is in California. It could be two weeks or a month, where it gives people time to get back stolen goods by contact, contacting the police, asking around. Now, obviously, it's not going to happen all the time, but that's why the law exists. That's why they have to take the ID. So they know who's turning this in in case something bad happens. We know who it is. Now, if they use that ID later to track back bad games coming in that were counterfeit or that were pieces of crap fakies, fakey, fakey, fakies, that'd be great, but they're not doing that. They're absolutely not doing that here. So there's many problems here in this scenario. The first problem is, obviously, it's a counterfeit game. Now, you, they are not training the employees at, you know, the whatever, 300, 500 GameStop locations across the U.S. to look for counterfeits. It, it's too intensive to do that. You have to then look for counterfeits uh, amongst all, you know, the 15 or so retro systems, 10 or 12, whatever it is, retro game systems that are coming in, Game Boy Advance, NES, Super Nintendo. There's no way they can train them all because who knows how much money they're going to be making on this initiative anyway versus GameStop selling, you know, new games and accessories and consoles. That's how they're making their money, which raises the question, why the fuck is GameStop doing this? But whatever, that, that ship has freaking sailed across the Atlantic while it's on fire at this point. The employee, I'm not going to blame. He's just doing his job. He's getting paid, whatever, 10 bucks an hour. You know, he's looking in the system for the games. He's going to give whatever the system tells him back. That's fine. Now, <laughs> what's interesting, though, is that there's no way for them to test these games either. And they're not testing them necessarily back at the location, you know, the Super GameStop retro location where all these games get mailed back to before getting shipped out via online sales. Again, that's all the conversation. But this cartridge was bad. Uh, John crazy glued it because it, it got damaged in shipping. But on the back, it didn't even say Sega like all the Genesis cartridges did. It said something else. It said like 16-bit or something in a weird font. So that's fine. That's perfectly fine. But offering $28 only on a game that they could probably go back and, and resell for between 180 and $200 is criminally insane. It just doesn't make any sense. Just because if you go to any retro game shop, and yes, you have to, you have to count GameStop as a retro game shop, you're going to get anywhere from cash only 30 to 50%. Sometimes you get credit that's 50 to 66% or 70%. Depends upon the game and how, how quickly how quickly the shop thinks it can move and if they really, really desire it. So $28 is uh, percentage-wise over 200 What is that? Da-da-da-da. That's uh, 15%. 15% of the cost of what they're being re, uh, reselling at. Is my math right out there? Is that 15% of 230? I think it is. 
Um, <laughs> I'm not great at math. I got a calculator in my phone, but why bother? I'm going to guess and be wrong so you guys can call me out on it. So that's bad. That's not encouraging people that low percentage in order to turn to go to the GameStop and give them the games. It's also not going to be encouraging for the average person with a console and 20 games wanting to just have one stop and just dump off their collection somewhere and just and just do it and then have a, a GameStop employee say, well, we're only taking three of these games out of your out of your pile of 10. So you got to go somewhere else with them. Okay, great. Now I got to either split the difference and get three, get credit or cash for three here, take the rest across town to the retro game shop, mom and pop place, if it exists. So it's a waste of a trip. Why not go there in the first place? And you'll probably get more more cash or credit if it's a reputable reputable game store uh, and does good on, on trade-ins. Like Luna Video Games, two locations in San Diego. That's my plug for a sick Ian. So that doesn't bode well for this initiative, and obviously it doesn't bode well if you're accepting uh, counterfeit games. Now, now John was cool. He didn't trade it in because he's an honest guy. Seemed like a nice guy. Check him out. Gave me through, gave me through the Decades channel. Uh, he just wanted to see if they were going to take it, and they were going to take it. And he said, ah, it's okay. I'll think about it. And they all go to the retro game shop. So don't don't support this practice. Just, just, just don't freaking do it. Um, it's just not... It's not going to work out. You're not going to get the... I mean, it's only going to work out if you're going to be a scam artist. But if you're going to be a scam artist, remember, you're going to be hurting people that are going to end up getting these shitty counterfeit games. So if you can live with that, you know, don't listen to my fucking podcast. If you're the type of person that does that. Have some integrity. Don't do that. Unless, I guess, if a million people do that, you'll, you'll put GameStop out of, out of retro game business. I mean, that would, that would probably happen. But I, I, can't, I can't endorse that. I can't endorse that. So speaking of GameStop, retro horror, horror. We've been talking about the GameStop retro initiative for what, like close to a year now. Blue conquers Bad Fur Day. Chrono Triggers, that's like has like Madden 95 inside instead. Just total awfulness. And we always thought that the story run, where they had a photographer there, with people with the you know the, the retro uh, game shop or whatever you want to call it, headquarters where all the video games get mailed back to from the stores where they get they put on their white latex gloves the employees they clean them all and then they test them and they have them ready to go they repair them and before they ship them out when they're ordered you know you know that whole story we always thought was BS and all these uh, the multitude of of stories coming out from Reddit. And people emailing me and Ian help friends of of Ian who are getting who got the wrong game sent, or it was a counterfeit, or or it was just a shoddy EEPROM cart. They're they're true, but we only could guess why. We only can guess why this was happening. We had no way to know the inner workings of what went on with this initiative, and I, I guess why they haven't. Why they decided to go national with this retro game trade-in initiative? We had no idea, no idea until now, because Pat, which is me, I was emailed by a former manager at GameStop Corporate. Oh, 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 oh baby! I'm gonna. This is gonna be like sort of a story time with Pat telling the story here. I got permission to retell the story. I'm going to keep this person's identity a secret 
But it looks like from what he's telling me, it checks out. So I'm an impartial, <laughs> I'm an impartial reporter here. I'm just relaying information. But he does say that once this story gets found out, and GameStop does monitor these sort of social media videos and tweets or what have you, uh, the corporate cor- GameStop corporate is going to know who this guy is after I tell this story. But that's not going to stop me from saying it, and he has no fear of that. Anyway, so here we go. <clears throat> So this is my response to him. He originally emailed me, ask, uh, basically saying, uh, he said, Hey, I know you've talked about GameStop on your show, mostly regarding the retro program and how abysmal it was. I was a sales manager down there for a couple years, running their now-defunct eBay store that no one knew about. We'll get into that. And when they learned of my expertise and background in collecting and dealing, they unofficially had me work on the retro program. I left the company in April for a multiple, multitude of reasons, but I saw firsthand a lot of what went on there, and I'm willing to talk about it if you have any interest in having your fears about their processes verified. I won't go into names out of respect for the people who may still be working there, or numbers, since I don't know if they appreciate me revealing that, but I'll answer or talk about pretty much anything else since I love the retro game community. Let me know if you're interested. Of course, I said, yeah! This is, yeah, I mean, Ian, Ian who, who's sick right now, he'd love to hear about this. He'll be hearing about this you know, on iTunes or Stitcher or Podbean, where you can download it, or on YouTube, where you guys are probably watching this and listening to it right now. So I said, yeah, here we go. Here's the story. Sit back and relax. He's going to go into some detail, he said, because I quote, there's a lot to say, and I'm a pretty fast typer. My only request is if you use any of this information online or on the show is that you let me know about it so I can check it out. I'm not trying to strike back at the company. I left on my own terms. But more but more so, I'm trying to enlighten the retro gaming community, which I know is a very passionate bunch. <laughs> yeah. I'll preface everything with a backstory. April 2013, I took a job with an electronics buyback company called Buy Mytronics, BMT, which was owned by GameStop at the time I was operating independently in Denver. They specialized in consumer electronics and not much else. I was responsible for handling eBay listings and customer service for their eBay store. Fast forward to October 2013, GameStop decides to ignore their contract with BMT and move the operation down to the headquarters in Texas about 1.5 years ahead of schedule. In closing the, De- the Denver ops, they had to lay off a bunch of people, but they also needed to keep some of, my t- of the team there to run the thing down in Grapevine. I'm guessing it was where the retro uh, game initiative is happening right now for GameStop. I was chosen to go down, uh, assume the management roll of the store and moved to t- down to Texas in February 2014. The eBay store, which was unceremoniously axed three months after I left, became part of the quote-unquote re-commerce GameStop's used consumer electronics department and went on as normal. In 2015, there were rumblings that the company wanted to get back into the retro market. I personally used to be a collector slash dealer and had a lot of knowledge about it, so I offered my services. At first, I actually wanted to head up the entire uh, project, but I wasn't high enough on the totem pole yet to do that. They did, however, utilize my expertise in various ways, except when they didn't, which was pretty much the entire time. Before it launched, I expressed concerns about a couple of things. One, the testing process. The ROC, Refurb Ops Center, was a shit show. Underpaid and overworked people who, who get graded on very stringent things are not the people I want testing something as nuanced as retro gaming. Most of the ROC employees were very foreign as well. That's his words, not mine. I'm guessing he means maybe they were English as a second language. That's what I'm going to guess that he meant here. Nothing at all against cultural diversity. Back to the story. But in my visits there, I found a disturbingly large language and understanding gap between the text and everyone else. Pat here again. Okay, what I thought. Back to his story. 
Having inexperienced people working on this project would be a disaster. They assured me that everyone would be would be properly trained, and they and they're the best refurb center in the world, and all that other bullshit. Second thing was spotting fakes. Technically, that falls into testing, but it starts before it gets to the ROC. It starts at the stores. Granted, most store employees are more likely to understand why it's important because they're around games all the time, but there was next to no store training for this shit because trading costs money. Lots of money. Anyway, they did provide uh, they did provide documentation to the stores, but it was one page buried in GSO, their online trading resource tool, and most people probably didn't care. So, they assured me that everything will be fine and dandy. Great, we move forward with it. The project started as a pilot in two regions, I believe in New York and Alabama. Pat here, he's correct. Back to the story. It was an unbelievable success. Retro trades were absolutely through the roof when it launched, and they didn't even do a whole ton of marketing behind it at the time. It actually caused a couple problems. When you grossly underestimate need, you grossly underbudget for labor and space. So the ROC was getting slammed with retro items and didn't have the people to handle it. So they brought in temps. Now you have inexperienced people training even less experienced people on something that no one at the ROC has even really mastered anyway. And it was a goddamn mess. My superiors were thrilled with the trade numbers, but scared shitless of sitting on that much product. So I was tasked with selling some of it. I had a couple wholesale buyers who bought the meat of the comments and slightly better than comments, but we had the perfect outlet for the good stuff. The eBay store. I'm not sure if it was you or another retro community YouTuber who said it, but the general consensus was, quote-unquote, don't buy retro from GameStop, buy it from eBay if you have to. Most people didn't know that GameStop even had an eBay store. The name was Green Gadgets from the BMT days, and it was of utmost importance that there was disconnect from uh, Green Gadgets and GameStop for the exact reason you're probably thinking. If people knew that our eBay store was GameStop, it would bring a lot of negative press with it, and people intentionally wouldn't shop there. So we started selling some of the good stuff, and since I was running things, I tried keeping it reasonably priced. When Sculptor's Cut was going for 300 I had my team listed at 250 I wanted to provide some value to the retro community without doing that, in quotes, GameStop price gouge, in quotes, bullshit. As long as we were hitting margin goals and I was burning through product, thousands of units per week across eBay and my wholesale buyers, everything was fine. Until it wasn't. So when dealing with thousands of units per week on top of everything else we had to do on the daily, we didn't have time to check everything for authenticity. Plus, the ROC was supposed to be doing that anyway before it even got to us. Our return rate on retro was surprisingly low in the beginning, so I wasn't really concerned until a return case was opened on eBay because their chrono trigger booted up as Madden 93. Pat here, we covered that before. Back to the story. Uh Uh-oh. We go through the return process and get the unit back. Sure enough, they're not lying. During that time, a second case had opened. Another fake. I talked to someone about it who relays it to the ROC, and they make it seem like nothing at all is wrong. I took matters into my own hands. I bought a screwdriver and went through our stock of higher value things. We came up with 13 fakes. They were all cart swaps, every one of them. No fake labels or anything that would have given it away at first. From that point on, we opened every game over $20 to verify it and didn't sell any other fakes. So at least if anyone bought them from Green Gadgets, the eBay store, after the initial batch, it at least had a pseudo uh, seal of approval on it from myself. Anyway, I bring this up to the ROC and they invite me down to check out their processes firsthand. It's as bad as you think. There are people who had no idea what they were doing training everyone. There was at least one lead there who understood retro and everything, but it wasn't enough. They weren't opening carts. 
They were popping the game in and turning it on, and if anything came up, they called it good. No one verified that the fucking game that came up on the TV matched the cart. No one. I had them run through a couple buckets that they had already done and said were good, and shit started unraveling fast. There were four copies of Conquer that were marked as broken because they didn't turn on. Makes sense. I asked them if they tried cleaning up the connectors. They had not. Seriously, not one person there thought to take five seconds and clean the damn cart. So he cleaned them. And like some sort of magic wizardry, they boot up. And one of them is fake. Not really surprised. So we continue through the bucket, which happens to have some pretty rare stuff in it. Demon's Crest is in there. Doesn't turn on. Clean it. Still nothing. I ask if anyone has a screwdriver. And they do. So why the hell weren't they using it? And we crack it open. Not only is it fake, but someone damaged the traces of the cart so it wouldn't turn on, hoping to dupe some poor sap at the store into giving them the money for it anyway. Pat here, we discussed a DuckTales 2 where that happened. Back to the story. But here's the other problem. The store doesn't test them either. They look at the label, see if there's a skew for it, and if there are probably thousands across the consoles, we did have a big library available, and assign a value as long as it doesn't look like total shit. If there's no skew, they'll still take it under the generic whatever console game skews, which was worth something like five cents. This made sense to do because we didn't want to say no to trades, but some games, as you know it, are not worth a whole hell of a lot. Anyway, so the store doesn't do any sort of testing or verification. It gets to the ROC, and they barely do anything with it either, and when an issue comes up, they don't know how to handle it. The whole thing was a clusterfuck. There were tens of thousands of units sitting in the distribution center, so I requested a list and requested to bring over all of the high-dollar titles so I could verify their authenticity before someone bought them on GameStop.com which unfortunately didn't work because they didn't send over the titles, all the titles, and people still got shit like the Blue Conquer or whichever game it was you had mentioned on the one show. I actually laughed when they sent me the list. Multiple copies of games I'd never seen before in the wild were popping up. Two copies of Snow Brothers came over. One was surprisingly legit. The other one had the infamous reproduction label printed on it, which I believe you had brought up. Bunch of fake Earthbounds and Final Fantasy threes in there. Various fake conquers and other such expensive slash rare titles. You name it, someone probably faked it and traded it in. Sunset Riders, Sculptor's Cut, both Evos, DuckTales 2. Someone even faked a fucking NBA Jam cart and put Sonic 2 in it. Why you do that? I don't know, but I thought it was amusing. So I go back to the ROC and offer to train people on what to look for. From the obvious reproduction label staring them in the face to how to identify the game chip using the code stamped on the PCB and ensure it matches the label, which, if you know, is the absolute best way to authenticate Nintendo cards. They asked me to write a process guide for the stores in the ROC, and I do that. Obviously, the best thing would be to spend three times store count to arm everyone with a screwdriver, uh, excuse me, $3 times store count to arm everyone with a screwdriver to open high-dollar carts. Too expensive slash would take focus away from other things, etc. So I suggest that they merely threaten it. Say, hey, this game's pretty high value. I'm just going to go in the back and crack it up and make sure it's legit. And most people are going to fall for that bluff and back out on the trade. They didn't want to do that either. So I asked about installing a console, even a fucking Retron 5 in these stores, to have them boot the game to the title screen. Nope. Their solution, tank trade values on the high dollar high-risk games. So unless they change something, you can literally just make shitty quality repro slash fakes and trade them in for cash. I would never condone this action, though, because it's the eventual end user that gets a shitty experience, and GameStop isn't going to care about eating the 20 bucks they gave you. 
Pat here, and that's what we've always said, the reason why you shouldn't do this. Back to the story. By the time I left the company, nothing really changed. My efforts were mostly wasted. When they expanded into the second wave of consoles, Saturn, Game Boy stuff, etc., I had various meetings to identify potential problems and stop them ahead of time, as well as point out some of the rare-slash-high-dollar titles they can take in. And one of the things I warned them about was specifically for Saturn. Imports. They had no idea that people imported Saturn games at all, let alone that someone would trade in a Japanese version of a, U- a rare U.S. game and make bank on it, so I instructed them on what to look for regarding imports, etc. I really did put a lot of effort into trying to enhance the retro game program, not necessarily to increase the bottom line, but to ensure that the retro gamers out there weren't getting screwed over by a company that didn't give two shits about them. Now that they're opening up retro to the entire base of stores, the problem is only going to get worse. Unless they heeded my advice at some point and learned what the hell to do, you're going to see more stories of more angry customers getting fake games. And if that happens, at least let it be known that I actively tried to stop it. But you can't be the good guy in a $10 billion company who cares nothing about their customers or employees and only acts to increase their bottom line and keep shareholders happy. Here's a couple of anecdotal things I saw during my time there, apart from just cart swaps. Multiple 32X games tagged in as Genesis in the system. An Atari 2600 Pac-Man tagged in as the NES one. A Master System game tagged in as a Genesis title. Reproduction label! I still fucking hate this one. Wrong labels entirely. Contra Hardcore had some weird custom label on it. It wasn't Contra Hardcore anyway. Bootleg Hong Kong slash Chinese carts. Various legit rare titles tagged in as generic. So the customer got five cents for something we sold for $100 plus. Carts that weren't even put back together properly. Missing screw, different screws, etc. So I'll go into the other things now. Sorry this is epically long. In their mind, there's no such thing as a game that won't sell, with the exception of broken units. They truly believe that they will sell out of everything at some point and plan accordingly. The old plan for generic games was that none of them were tested because they were five-cent payouts and weren't worth the time. So when I was there, all generics were sent to my team to be handled, which worked. I had the knowledge of what was worth anything, and past that, we sold a lot of units to that one wholesale buyer. Pat here, I'm going to find out who the wholesale buyer is eventually. Back to the story. So we always had a good release valve whenever we got overwhelmed. Past that, broken units slash fakes they actually caught were just destroyed and shrunk out of a loss since they had no real economic value. When I was there, the retro game program was immensely profitable, as you might imagine. Their pre-owned sales as a whole are are usually pushing 50% plus margin. I'm pretty sure that's made public to investors, so I can probably say that. And retro was very close to that. My department ran higher margins than normal due to the the generics, but I think we were were in the realm of 10% of all retro sale units slash dollars. We were selling thousands of units a month, so GameStop.com was selling tens of thousands. I'm not sure what they do with those generics now. They probably now sell to my old buyer instead of directly through me. Since it fits in so well with their current pre-owned structure, it's here to stay, plus it artificially inflates trade units, and that'll make investors happy. For team size, my eBay team had six people, including myself. We had a shipper, four listers, and me. As I mentioned, I was unofficially part of the retro game project, but past that, we had one merchant on the pre-owned team, pre-owned team, and that was it for the corporate side. At the ROC, I believe they ran two shifts with the lead and a few associates with one supervisor overseeing everything. Though I believe he was also a supervisor of something else as well, so his attention was divided. They didn't necessarily need more people, they needed better people, and I highly doubt they ever got them. 
So I'll wrap this up now. If there's ever anything you want more clarification on, additional questions, feel free to ask. The bottom line is that people should not buy retro games from GameStop and should, cert- should certainly support their local retro game uh, mom and pop shops, both from the perspective of getting a quality product and not lining the pockets of greedy executives. Pat here. Thank you so much, so much for this information. Former manager at GameStop Corporate who helped run the GameStop eBay selling team. The secret. <laughs> the secret. GameStop, eBay, selling user, as well as trying to knock into their heads at GameStop corporate what was wrong, trying to go down to the ROC, the Refurb Ops Center, and seeing that it was a shit show, trying to correct it, and still not making any headway. Thank you so much, but this isn't a shock. Is this a shock to you out there? It's not. This is just confirmation of more of the gritty details of what he went through. Someone who really cared about the retro gaming community to try to turn it around. And obviously, it's fallen on deaf ears. GameStop doesn't care. Why would they care about the niche retro game market? Why would they care? To them, it's positive cash flow. It's actually more shocking, not just the not testing, the lack of testing and cleaning of carts, but the fact that they are screwing over trade-in value, giving people five cents for a game that could be worth $100. That is shocking to me. Um, that is shocking. Now, this probably is a rare title that is not on their system because it's not popular. Um, That makes the most sense. Uh, They don't have, like, every single game on every system on GameStop.com, so they're just going to take, you know, a game, uh, I don't know, let's just say, like, I don't know, uh, Secret Scout for the NES. They ain't going to sell that on their website, but they'll take it for five cents and then sell it to uh, their their secret wholesale game seller guy who's going to pick it up from them, um, and they're going to pay more for it or, or anyone else. So that's what's going on here. Uh, so I'll find out who the wholesalers are. I'm very interested in, in finding out about that. And uh, I, I know you didn't care about being identified and getting into trouble, but um, thank you so much, and hopefully nothing bad happens. You just reported the truth, and I just relayed it. So there you go, guys. There's the awesome GameStop uh, retro game initiative from the inside out. Now, this was cool news. We don't really talk about Neo Geo MVS too often, or Neo Geo in general, uh, on the podcast. That Cadillac of game systems slash arcade. <laughs> I finally got a US AES uh, a year and a half, two years ago. It was actually a part of Flea Market Madness. And got a consolized MVS. You know why I got a consolized MVS? It's because the AES games cost a fucking arm and a leg. So an MVS game like, uh, I don't know, Metal Slug that can cost you 80 bucks, the same thing can cost you a grand uh, for the AES uh, home console version. MVS is the version cartridge that you put into the arcade slot, if you didn't know out there. And AES is the home system. The problem is, is that since more people are getting consoleized MVSs, if you call it a problem, and there's also now converters to play MVS arcade games on the home AES, MVS games are shot up in price as well. Not to the extent to even come close to matching the exorbitant AES prices. But they've risen as well. I'm not an expert. I don't follow it too much. But I know from talking to people that they have gone up. So what do you do about that at that point? Well, they do have those, uh, you know, one. I think there's like four or five popular multi-carts. The 141 and 1. They have the 81 and 1. The 61 and 1. Which will give you, give you like 60 to 75% of the 
uh, Neo Geo library on a, on a cartridge. And it used to be that, you know, that MVS cart was not compatible with the ES, even the converters they have, but now they are. But the newer converters cost like $400. <laughs> so that's not the best solution. It's still not a cheap system to, to play. And you can get a conf, but you can also get a consoleized MVS if you want to play those multi carts or just buy the cheaper MVS games. But those consoleized MVSs will run you anywhere from four to you know, seven hundred dollars, something like that in that range, depending on how well finished they are. So that's a problem too. There's no easy way out uh, when it comes to the Neo Geo game playing. <laughs> there is, isn't. So. We have finally the release of the Neo SD MVS. It's a Neo Geo MVS flash card. Brand new. Starts shipping uh, middle of November. It's compatible with all commercial games and homebrews. You have 768 megabits of flash memory. Uh, this is from their press release. Enough to hold the largest officially uh, released games. And plus some extra space for system software. And there has uh, there's information about the tech side about you know, the speed of it, you know, how much RAM, everything else. Supports micro SD and SDHC cards up to 32 gigs. So my knowledge, I'm trying to think of my emulation days on Neo Geo. You should be able to fit the entire library on 32 gigs uh, easily. There's about, what is there, 200 Neo Geo games, something like that. That that should fit fine. You have a friendly game selection menu, with game screenshots, game screenshots, instant boot to the last Flash game. Uh, it appears as an original cartridge to the board, which can use the BIOS soft dips configurations as with the original cart. That's a pretty cool idea. Runs original games on patch, emulating the original cartridge protections in hardware. Nice. Uh, can be used for game development. Allows the homebrew games to access expanded hardware features. SROM banking, increased bank area space. I have no idea what that means. I'm just looking at this press release. <laughs> uh, it's updatable system software and firmware for future additions and features. Uh, you can switch the cartridge region without needing special BIOS. That's pretty cool. Now, even in the past, if you got an AES, you can buy like a Japanese AES. But if you played uh, an English game, it would automatically swap to the Japanese version because uh, they're, they're system locked. Uh, AES home consoles by what region, US or Japan, doesn't matter what game you put in, it'll switch the language. So this would eliminate that, which is cool. Uh, an MVS board AES emulation without needing special BIOS. Really sweet. Really sweet. Now the cost. You can't get away from it. You just can't. You can't get away from a, a consoleized MVS costing you a lot. Hell, even a Japanese AES, which is a hell of a lot more common than a US one's going to run you uh, at least 250 at this point. This is going to cost you 380 euros for this Neo Geo uh, MVS flash cart. Uh, 380 euros is about 422 dollars. Well, the, the US dollar got a little bit stronger, which is nice. Uh, so it still keeps it out of reach if you want to play on a console. I mean, on a TV, uh, because you're going to buy your consoleized consoleized MVS. That's going to run you, like I said, I'll just say 450, 500, and then you're going to spend 400 on this flash cart. You're going to buy an extra controller, maybe. You're looking at a thousand dollars to play Neo Geo games on your TV. Now, of course, that's the the last the last time you're going to have to have to ever pay anything to play, but that's what you're looking at. So that's your solution there. That's one of the solutions. You get this flash cart, you load them up with your ROMs, you get a consoleized MVS, you're good to go. 
Of course, you can get, like I said, you can get the AES, get the converter. <sighs> For an MVS, it's still going to run you $1,000. The converter is going to cost you $400. And then, you know, you're still going to have to buy, your multi-car's going to run you maybe 100 bucks or less, but then that doesn't have all your individual games that you want. It's not going to have your Windjammers on there, potentially. It's not going to have your, I don't know, King of Fighters uh, uh, 2001 or something. You have to buy that separately. You know what I'm saying? There won't be all the Metal Slugs. You'll get most of them, probably, but not all of them. So you're still going to be running a ton of money. So this still might be uh, the way you want to go. But if you own an arcade machine, fuck it. This is definitely the way you want to go. Absolutely. Because, again, those multi-cars don't have all the games. With this, you're going to get all the games. You're just going to download a nice little torrent, probably, you know, having all your Neo Geo library on there. Absolutely. If you own an arcade, this is the way to go. This is, I want to get it. Uh, I do have a Neo Geo cabinet now. It's not in the best condition. It has to be restored. But when I get it up and running, I will absolutely get this cart for it. And not to worry about uh, buying MV, a, a separate MVS card or swapping out, you know, inferior uh, compilation cards, multi cards, one you know, one for another ever again. I will definitely be on board with this, absolutely. So I'll put the link. This is at uh, neosdstore.com. Obviously, no reviews are out yet for how this actually works, but you know, let's assume this thing works fine. If it doesn't. You know, Neo Geo players and collectors, oh, they, they they will scream and shout. They got a lot of influence and money. You don't want to screw with them. Oh, they will take you down. But there's also a, a YouTube video. If you go there, they show it off. They show it working. So, you know, they'll sell a decent amount. Maybe the price will come down, maybe not. But, you know, they, they're, they're pricing it smartly because they're pricing it the same amount as a converter. You know, so there you go. Uh, and on the video, they do show it flashing. They show the hardware, the, uh, they show an MVS uh, arcade board, and they show their cart in there. And they're loading up a game. There you go. There you go. I wonder if they'll do an AES version. That'll be very interesting. Very interesting. I'm guessing they, I don't know why they wouldn't be able to if they did an MVS one. You know, the, the guts are about the same. It's the same hardware. So, there you go for those... 14 Neo Geo collectors slash game players uh, fans out there listening to this podcast. You can't wait for that one, can you? So, No Man's Sky, huh? <laughs> Ian probably feels worse and worse about his uh, review, which he wasn't aware of all the, the bad stuff the marketing had done. All, all the bad stuff Sean Murray had said that it turned out to be false, false advertising from Hello Games regarding the game release. All the screenshots of the game that turned out not to appear in the game, different graphic style, stuff like huge space battles that didn't appear, and customizing, you know, uh, battleships and things like that. And he wasn't aware of that. Giant dinosaurs, you know. So we we talked about before how they're being investigated in the uh, the UK by the Advertising Standards Authority for uh, false advertising, misleading advertising. The, the the No Man's Sky subreddit was temporarily closed because the moderator described it, in quotes, as a hate-filled waste hole because people are so pissed about this game. Remember, this is a game that dropped like 90% of its player base in like the first like few weeks. They're like, okay, fuck this, I'm out. Not to say people can't enjoy stuff about it, but when you're sold uh, a false sale of, of goods, you're not going to be happy. Absolutely not. So, PlayStation executive Sean Layden was on Live with YouTube Gaming 
And so far, this is the only worthwhile thing to come out of that live with YouTube Gaming Show. Um, number of topics came up, and the reaction to No Man's Sky did, obviously. Uh, he said, Hello Games had, in quotes, an incredible vision for what they wanted to make. He said that a No Man's Sky uh, with procedurally generated worlds was something that had never been done before. Well, not exactly. There's been procedurally generated stuff in games going back to Elite, where you literally had worlds that were procedurally generated. You just couldn't explore those worlds, but, you know, they were worlds. So that's not totally accurate. Um, He said, in quotes, I think Hello Games, Sean Murray, and his team had an incredible vision of what they were going to create. Something never... Something never done before. And a very small team had a very huge ambition. Now they're still working at it. They're still updating it. They're trying to get closer to what their vision was. I played a lot when it when it came out. I think what we learned is that we don't want to stifle ambition. We don't want to stifle creativity. We don't want to put people into slots where they must execute against an action-adventure path or a fighting path or a shooting path. <sighs> That's great, Mr. Layden. But... It's okay for not wanting to stifle ambition, but you also don't want to push a game that's promising shit that doesn't exist in the release version. Because now you have uh, Hello Games and Sean Murray who could be done in the industry potentially. And and remember, Sony, Sony, you, you backed this game. You put marketing dollars behind this. You wanted to make this your console exclusive. Yes, it was on the PC, but I know that, but it wasn't on Microsoft system. Uh, you were all in on this. You put, you priced it as a AAA title at sixty bucks. So maybe you saying it was only a six person team. Maybe you should have priced it at thirty or twenty. It should have been like a an independent price, you know. So this was you, you know you're you're culpable here a little bit, and you didn't have any overseeing of this to say, hey, what the hell's going on with this game? You know, a month before launch, this has nothing of what we showed in the advertiser for the past year and a half. Where are the big dinosaurs? Where are all these huge space battles? You know, where's the you know, where's these branching paths? Where's all this shit we were promised? Where's the trading? So he went on to say, nobody in development wants to say that they can't do a thing, right? Uh, no one wants to tell someone, I know I can't do that for you. People are really trying. Um, I think looking at the different industries is why the privilege of working in the gaming industry is where everybody has the courage to say yes. And they want to try to realize their ambitions. No one's saying game developers shouldn't realize their ambitions. You should not promise shit that's not going to be in the final game. That's what people have been saying. I know this is him doing PR speak, but come on, man. Unbelievable. I mean, I didn't have a a horse in that race. I I didn't care if No Man's Sky crashed and burned on its own merit or did well, but I do care about false advertising. I do care about that, and I do care about people getting snookered out of their at a 60 bucks plus plus tax for a game they've been waiting for two years for. And getting something else entirely. Other stuff on this interview from Jeff Keighley about the PS and the Pro and and Project Scorpio and everything else coming out. And, oh, Jesus Christ, I don't care right now about this. I really don't. I don't care about these mid-generation, last-generation console releases. Oh, man. So there you have it. No Man's Sky. Sean Murray, you're a rich man. Sony, you made money off it, but... My God, this situation, there's got to be safeguards in place. Sony, if you're going to throw money behind a small company like this, you you got to you gotta, you gotta put the, put the, some sort of shackle on them so they can't do this. 
or come in and help with more manpower and make sure this game comes out and it's what people thought they were. It's what you advertise is what was promised in interviews and in videos. Unbelievable. I was into World of Warcraft before anyone else was. Well, Warcraft at least. As I mentioned on the past in the podcast, I grew up with Warcraft 1 and 2. I was a big PC gamer in the early to mid-90s. I got buy one, get one free. I really buy Warcraft 2, The Ties of Darkness, and get Warcraft 1, Orcs and Humans, for free. When Warcraft 2 came out, what was that, 95, uh, Warcraft, Orcs and Humans was, I believe, two years old. It was a couple years old by then. Oh, it was 94 for Warcraft, Orcs and Humans. And Tides of Darkness came out in 95, so a year later. A year later. I thought it was longer for some reason between that. So, Warcraft 1 was a good game. I remember when I was a kid, real-time strategy, I was into that. I was into Civilization, which is a turn-based strategy, but real-time strategy was cool too. But Orcs and Humans obviously set the, set the stage for not just the future couple of Warcraft uh, real-time strategy games and the add-ons. I always talk about how the Warcraft 2 add-on was impossible to, to defeat. But also set the stage for the entire World of Warcraft and that game and that franchise and the movie and, uh, you know, the awful turn-based, uh, excuse me, the, the awful adventure game, <laughs> click-and-point adventure game we spoke about before that Clancy Brown voiced, which is still funny to see. So these are very important games in the history of video games. They are. You know, uh, Activision, Blizzard, uh, they just had BlizzCon. This is a multi-billion dollar company at this at this point, right? I mean, come on. So, Warcraft Orcs and Humans, I remember played it, I played it first before going to um, Warcraft 2. It was a fine game for the time. For 94, when I got it in 95, probably I think then 96 I got it both. It was a, it was a fine game for real-time strategy. Uh, I didn't remember being great, but I remember having fun playing it. It didn't have a lot of what the sequel had, I remember. It didn't have like the aerial, aerial units, didn't have the... Uh, see if I can remember my Warcraft Orcs and Humans lore. It didn't have, like, the sappers and the guys that would just run and blow up, like the suicide bombers. Didn't have that. It didn't have sea battles and traveling by sea. So it was limited compared to Warcraft 2. Don't want to say antiquated because it absolutely was not antiquated. But it was, it was a successful game for Blizzard, obviously. Enough to do a sequel. You know, they both have the same, you know, you, you build your base, you got your barracks, you know, you build your forge to upgrade your units, you build your units, you go out and explore and attack, you have your grunts getting gold and what have you. I mean, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a real-time strategy game. It, it, they're all the same, you know, on the surface, getting resources, things like that. You know, the, the user interface, you know, you move units, you, you attack, you, you stand guard, whatever. So, it was an okay game. I don't think it's one of the better real-time strategy games I've played. However, the sequel was absolutely fantastic. Even only coming out like a little over a year later, the sequel upped the ante. Like I said, it had the aerial units. It had, you know, they added more towers for defense. Um, I think the magic was a lot greater in the sequel. They had more of the hero units. Uh, Air units battling at sea. More personality, more humor, more of that great humor from the first 
sort of generation of Warcraft games that sort of got lost somewhere, unfortunately. Um, fantastic, fantastic soundtrack. You know, that soundtrack is so memorable. It, if you put that in a game today, it'd be one of the best ones you still ever heard today, 20 years later. Uh, the cutscenes, yeah, they were rudimentary, but they told a decent story. And, a, and again, a story from both sides. And you could replay the, the humans or the orcs. So uh, there was the replay value. So why am I bringing all this up? Reminiscing about Warcraft 1 and 2. Well, Blizzard came out and said that there's no plans to rem- remaster them. Because, in quotes, they are not that fun anymore. So during a panel at uh, BlizzCon, someone asked him about uh, those two games. Uh, Blizzard co-founder Frank Pierce said there's no plans to remaster them. He says they do have access to the original source code and assets, but he said it's really hard to, a- uh, to access that stuff, unlock it, and figure out how it all works. We had some dedicated folks that were passionate about the idea dig up the Warcraft 1 assets and code. They got it working, and when they got it running in a window, and I played it, Warcraft Orcs and Humans was awesome first time. I promise you. In today's world, by today's standards, it's just not fun anymore. Holy shit. They want to play a game. You shouldn't make the assessment for them whether or not it's fun. There's tons of games that get re-released that, quote-unquote, haven't aged well doesn't mean people don't want to easily play a game 20 years ago on a modern console or computer. You're, get, you're just taking away the ability of him to do that. Now, obviously, you're running a business. And if you don't think, you know, you're, you're weighing the scale, pros versus cons, should I put in the time and resources and money to do this versus the money that it'll get back? I can't imagine it costing a huge, huge amount of money to remaster a simple real-time strategy game like this. One or two. Two is still okay. The graphics in one don't aren't that great. I I got you. That might require a lot more remastering. Two though still has pretty fine uh, graphics. Go back and look at Warcraft Two. Go back and look at it. Still pretty colorful, pretty nice. You know, cartoony graphics. I think it stands out pretty well still. Sound effects, like I said, or excuse me, the soundtrack, absolutely outstanding. Yeah, you look at those graphics. Now, you want to talk about maybe one being too simple, that's fine. I think Warcraft 2 looks really nice still. Maybe you clean up the interface a little bit, you update the icons, things of that nature, the font. Uh, it doesn't need a huge amount of upgrading. I mean, you don't have to change the source code for this game. You're just updating the graphics, really. How much time is that really going to take? You know, you're redoing all the tiles on the map, things like that. You're adding in a, a multiplayer mode. Oh, man, do I remember grunt rushing in Warcraft 2? Oh, man, we had rules. No, no grunt rushing for like five minutes. Let's get a game going. Otherwise, it's no fun. <laughs> oh, man, that was one of my first ever uh, forays into uh, online multiplayer was Warcraft 2. It was Doom and Warcraft 2 and Duke Nukem 3D. That's what it was. So I feel bad for people that would want a remastered version of Warcraft 1 and 2. I think it would sell. I mean, there's, you know, 50 times, 100 times the amount of Warcraft, World of Warcraft, and, and people that know about Warcraft now for, versus when these games come out. I think even for historic sake, they want to play the remastered version of Warcraft 1 and 2. Since that's when it all started. That's the reason you have a BlizzCon. Because of the success of those two games. The first one was successful, but then 2 was even bigger. Hell, 2 got ported over to the PlayStation console. 
Warcraft 2. Uncommon game on the PlayStation. Um, so he said a couple of other strange things. No. He said the developer had limited resources and would, in quotes, much rather work on amazing content for games like World of Warcraft and Overwatch or work on a new project altogether. Uh, Blizzard president and co-founder Mike Morham jumped in at this point to say, in quotes, at this time. Whoa, so maybe they're keeping it open. Maybe maybe Pierce overstepped his bound, uh, bounds there. And then so Mike Morham said, well, let's, 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 wait a second. There could be money here. Maybe obviously not as much as Overwatch or an expansion to World of Warcraft, but this will still sell, which it will. And it's funny to say limited resources for a billion-dollar company. Like, you couldn't, like, outsource it. Someone, okay, redo the sprites. Hell, redo the sound effects. Hell, redo the music and come back to us in, like, eight months. You don't think they could do that? You don't think they can work that? They have all the resources. They're not going to go out of business. You don't think they'd turn at least a small profit? It's just the will to do it. I think it's underestimating how many people will go out and buy it. Hell, I'd be interested in a remastered version. I haven't played Warcraft 2 in probably at least 15 years at this point. I haven't popped it in. You know, we don't pop anything in on a PC. Well, you pop in a CD-ROM, I guess. No, I haven't popped it in in probably 15 years. But you know what? You put out a Steam version of these two, you price it at 15 20 bucks. Hell, I'm on board. Why not? And you can play it online against people. Scooboo. Scaboo. What's complete? Come on! It's a fun game. There's great voice acting in it. It's funny. Uh, you click on the sheep. Bye, mule. You know, stuff like that happens. It, it, don't... Don't don't underestimate. Don't underestimate. I guess how much the fans want this. Hell, someone asked you about it. But then also overestimate how much money it's going to take. You're not going to make money. Come on, you're going to make money. You're going to make money. And don't and don't go out go out and say they're not fun anymore because they fucking are. They're still fun, especially that second one. Like I said, the Tides of Darkness. If you haven't played it, go out uh, and get a version of it. Uh, you know. Get your DOS box, find a, a copy for five, ten bucks. Play it on the PlayStation One, even though I have no idea if it's good on the PlayStation One. Okay, don't do that. Just play it on the PC, and you'll see that they're 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 pretty fun games. Are you on a quest for epic gear, housewares, and collectibles? Loot Crate offers an epic range of pop culture items for less than $20 a month. If you're more of a fanatical fashionista alliteration, then Lootware, our monthly wearables and accessories subscription, will fill your closet with cult classics and your favorite franchises. If you want to get fancy, get a bigger box with bigger loot with Loot Crate DX. Ready your wands, pre-measure your positions, and get ready for November's enchanting theme. Magical! We've cast a powerful ancient spell to deliver you this 100% exclusive crate featuring bewitching items from Doctor Strange, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, and Big Triple Little China, which I love, and more. You have until the 19th of November at 9pm Pacific to subscribe and receive the month's crate of magical, but when the cutoffs hit, it's over! The magic's gone! Make sure you head over to lootcrate.com slash pat, P-A-T, and enter code pat, P-A-T, to save 10% off any new subscription today. Yes, go do that. Now, we're going to go to Q&A time on the CU Podcast. No movie topics this time out. At Marcus Aurelius, he asks, how would YouTube videos like AVGN and Game Chasers be affected 
if the retro video game bubble burst? Well, we're talking about a bubble. We've talked about it. I think it's getting closer from my experience. Me seeing multiple collectors, big collectors, sell off all at once their collection, or at least try to. One trying to keep it quiet so that prices don't crash before he sells it all. Um, And Ian reporting on seeing all these high-ticket items not sell at conventions, or even stuff like Earthbound not selling at a reasonable price. Earthbound's gone down in price, etc. I think we're getting there. So how does that affect YouTube? I think, well, Angry Video Game Nerd is successful outside of the retro gaming community, collectors and players. It got big for a sort of shock, nostalgic uh, re- uh, value in 2006 and blew up even more in 2007-2008. Uh, James sort of caught lightning in a bottle in terms of having a pretty well thought out at the time uh, and well produced show on a time on YouTube where a lot of that didn't exist. So it was sort of like a foray into early YouTube production back then. On a cool topic, he hit a, he hit like a 20s crowd who 15 years ago were playing these awful NES games and saying, wow, they were as bad as I thought. We just couldn't verbalize it in video form. You know, verbalize it and then, you know, visualize it in video form. So James, James' success was before retro games got big. He helped them get bigger. And James, I think, an AVGN show will be fine either way because it's a comedic show first and foremost. And so... You can have crappy games to talk about forever, regardless of a retro game bubble. And hell, he could talk about crappy modern video games. And he'd probably do even better if he did that. Since the retro game uh, niche actually could be holding back his views a little bit. That's all the conversation to think about. You know, heaven forbid he starts doing bad PS4 games, but he could do it. And I think the videos would do just as well. I don't think you might lose some people said, Oh, I want you to just do shitty Nintendo games, but I think you'd gain a new audience potentially. So I don't think he'd be affected at all. If a retro game bubble burst, um, you know, if people weren't interested anymore. Uh, now the game chasers, my pals, Billy and Jay. Now I have to be semi careful because anytime they get discussed in the show, uh, you have, you know, the acolytes of them come out and attack me thinking I'm attacking Billy and Jay. And then Billy and Jay have to come on and leave comments like, ah, uh, pass on attacking us. <laughs> but, but okay, that disclaimer is uh, gone now. So that's a more interesting question to me. Because that to me is more of an unknown. If a, if a game hunting show, and, and Flea Market Madness is there too, if that would dissipate, if the bubble burst, you would think it would do well just because you, there'd be more stuff to find. So I'm not sure about Billy and Jay's show. They've been sort of doing, you know, uh, more, let's just say, non-game-related stuff in Game Chasers. One video was about more ghosts showing up. They have a lot of uh, uh, humor. You want to call it toilet humor here and there, frat boy humor here and there. They they, they work that into the show. Uh, not just out of necessity, but it does help that even when their show started in 2012, there's a lot less retro games out there to find. They still get deals. Not saying they don't, but sort of the uh, it's getting a lot less likely for them to find, you know, a cheap Dinosaur Peak, a cheap little Samson on the NES. Not saying it can't happen. It's just a lot less likely for them to capture that on film. Likewise, on Flea Market Madness, there's some deals, but they're not the deals I used to get on Flea Market Madness. So if the retro game bubble burst. Would that affect shows like that, like Flea Market Madness or Game Chasers? I don't know. 
Because I think if that bubble burst, those games would go out to eBay. Those games would, these, these sellers, they're not going to go out to a flea market or garage sale and dump their games for a dollar each. They're going to be these, these, a lot of people that are going to get out of game collecting are the ones that got into it the past three years, three, four years. The ones that saw the popularity rise weren't really into game collecting 10, 12, 15 years ago. We'll call them the third generation or even fourth generation of game collectors. And that's not to criticize you, but it's the truth. They're the more of the Johnny come latelys. So they're the ones that are going to get out first. First, uh, basically, basically last in, first out when it comes to markets like this. So they're going to get out. They're going to get want to get top dollar for their items because they more than likely pay top dollar for their item by be- buying at game cl- uh, game conventions where you can get deals, but it's still high value. And eBay where you're paying top dollar. They're going to want to get that top dollar. Those games ain't showing up at a flea market. And if they do, you're not going to get a, going to get a good deal on them. So it's not like people are going to start uh, liquidating their collections and me finding them at a flea market. No. They're going to put them on eBay, hold that as long as they can to get the top dollar amount and stretch it out six months a year. Hell, it could take them three years to sell off their entire collection if they're getting rid of the entire thing. Or they sell just the, you know... I don't know, they might sell just their rare items and keep some of the commons. And so, you know, the, that you won't see a $20 contra still. Maybe it'll come down to like a 25 you know, or 30 from a 40 wherever it's at now, now from its bloated price. Tough to tell. Very tough to tell. More than likely, though, I, I think um, it'll keep on keeping on at least for a few years, even if the bubble bursts tomorrow. <laughs> because, like I said, I'll reiterate, reiterate again. Those uh, high dollar val- uh, value items, people are not going to just throw them out on a flea market on a five dollar table. People don't want to give away money. At G Jack X, is the NES Classic Edition a sign of things to come? I.e., more systems of more systems to follow by different companies, Sega, Atari, etc. Well, we've already had a thousand Atari flashbacks of various. Uh, quality and design. We'll just say we've had ClicoVision ones, we haven't we have had Intellivision ones, we've had a what two or three uh Sega ones put out by At Games of, of mediocre quality according to Ian. Um you have the handheld Atari one coming out. You've had one with cartridge slots on the Atari side. Uh they're usually emulator on a chips on a chip. Uh, so they've had the Atari ones with cartridge slots. You've had the Genesis ones with cartridge slots. And now you have Tech Toy putting out a quote-unquote real, like, guts Genesis horror one for 125 US in Brazil, uh, Mega Drive, with the cartridge slot and built-in games as well. So, I think it's this is just a logical step for, for Nintendo to get into the market. They picked a weird time, though. They, they're past the 25th anniversary of the NES. But, you know, you have a certain NES guidebook out, so, you know, maybe they saw the popularity of that and uh, want to get in on it. Just kidding. Even though Nintendo does know about the guidebook, you know they probably don't care. Um, I think it's a sign that Nintendo's going to experiment with this more. I mean, they have stockholders; they want to make money. You know, they want to hedge their bets with the Switch coming out. So if, if they sell 10 million NES Classic editions with a pretty high margin, you know, and that's not out of the realm of possibility, being that they sell at least a million or two of the Atari ones. And, the, and again, the 2600 is not anywhere close to the relevance or popularity of the NES. Not even close. So if they sell a million 
uh, Atari flashbacks, they can sell 10 million NES Classic Editions. It's just get the product into people's hands. Have GameStop carry 50 or 100 of them. They will move. The margin is pretty high. The cost to make these is, is pretty low from what I've seen and what I heard. So there's no reason they can't pump these out. But they'll probably hedge their bets like they did with the Amiibo and have them come out in a few months afterwards and scalpers will have their way the first maybe month. But before Christmas, hopefully, hopefully it comes out in, in, you know, in wide, wide, you know, wide, in large amounts in Walmart and in freaking Best Buy and Bed Bath & Beyond, wherever else they want to sell you know, consoles like this. The question is, though, are you going to get another NES version? With 30 more games or 50 more games, charge a little bit more. Are you going to get a Super Nintendo one in a year or two from now? Are you eventually going to get a 64 one? I will say no, just because of the 64 one. Um, the controller is probably be a little more costly there. And uh, that doesn't have the pull of an NES yet. Give it maybe 10, 15 years, maybe you'll get there. But maybe the Super Nintendo. The Super Nintendo came out 25 years ago. Feel nostalgic, you 30, 35 year olds for that? You know, that makes more sense. Maybe not quite yet with the N64. Maybe we're like 5, 10 years away from there, from that one. Hell, why not a Game Boy one? Would that be a bad idea? Game Boy Classic Edition with 30 built in games and it hooks up to a TV? Maybe. I don't know. Just throwing it out there. But uh, but at least I think Nintendo's going to experiment. I mean, hell, they're going to, they're having their. You know, the, the, was it NES yesterday hashtag? Is that what it is? They're going to have a party, a launch party at their Nintendo store in New York, which I am really looking forward to seeing uh, footage of that. You know, they got to get uh, Howard Phillips out for that. Um, they're going to have uh, the Nintendo tips line for the weekend. So uh, I, I think I think it could be fun. I think it could, could be fun. It's a, it's a great time. With a certain NES guidebook, potentially a certain NES app coming out, uh, hopefully, that um, this is a time to be alive. If, if this is the time in history where, uh, since 19, you know, 94 probably, the only time in history where um, you're going to have the NES being in the public spotlight versus back then. This is it. You're not going to see it in 2030. This is it. Unless we all get a Nintendo on a chip uh Implanted into our head, so so there you have it. Nintendo will uh, probably look into more of this in terms of other consoles. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, why not? Why wouldn't other other companies look into it? Like uh, uh, I don't know, like, like put out an Amiga in the in the UK or in Europe. You know, why not? Why not do that? They'll do that anyway, though. They'll probably do that anyway. This is from that Best Buy Rick One. How much time and planning is needed for the NES marathon? Any side effects from it? Health effects. Oh, yes, there are health effects. Hell, I'm stumbling and mumbling over my words right now uh, during this uh, podcast. Um, because it's a lot of work put into it. Not a pity party, not self-pity, uh, but it's just stating the facts. There's a good three to four weeks of prep. You have to contact sponsors, get sponsors involved, um, contact people about the video cameos, follow up since people are usually late with them. Uh, which just makes the pressure more. There's testing. There's talking to Twitch, to Spotlight, or in the past, Ustream. Um, again, testing is, is can be rough. Some years, me and Ian were yelling and screaming at each other. Uh, and doing the intro video some years took a lot out of me. And the outro video, testing that in, inside of, of uh, Wirecast, which is how we stream it. 
Um, there's something always goes wrong the week of. I've had uh, computers um, blow up. Uh, I've had my cell phone blow up. I had to take care of stuff like that. Knock on wood. If there's any wood near me, nothing catastrophic has happened this year so far. Um, so there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of stress. There's the Indiegogo page, spreading the word on Facebook. All the images of the sponsors have to be set up. Uh, making sure you get the word out. I've done podcast appearances. Uh, mentioning it. It all takes time. It all takes energy. Um, then that's even before the event itself. Uh, so even before the event last year, now last year was a special case because I was launching a certain NES guidebook Kickstarter at the time, but there's always something that happens day of. It's always tough to get the stream. You know, there's always different options. Uh, the bandwidth and the resolution has to get worked out. Thankfully this year, I have a much more powerful computer and, um, this year, it's a much better uh, bandwidth in terms of upload, so that shouldn't be as big of an issue. But the actual event itself is hard to run, just because there's constantly stuff going on. You need to check for new donations, and thank you so much. You can donate at nesmarathon.com and request a game. So there's a lot going on. You have to be somewhat entertaining for a 24-hour period. Um, it's exhausting. You have to take breaks. You have to keep hydrated. you to, you got to eat foodstuffs. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot going on. Uh, during the event, and then you're staying up for at least 24 hours. A lot of times, 30 hours. When you include afterwards, you know, you, you're not going to just sleep for 12 hours at 12 noon on Sunday. You want to stay up for about eight, nine hours. I try to power nap. It's always that weird um, forced hallucination sleep because you're so out of it, but you need it. And then I usually Frank treats me to dinner as a reward, his way of sponsoring me. <laughs> And then I'm a wreck for three days afterwards. So I'm glad I'm not, not going to be doing the podcast after the seventh annual NES Marathon this year. I'm doing it now. Ian's sick. Um, so I'm glad it's going to get get done right now. But the mental aspect and the, uh, uh, we'll just say, uh, professional aspect, uh, the, the, the number of things I can do in terms of videos, NES Punk videos, Forget it for like the month before the podcast. It's tough to put anything out, having any energy for a week afterwards is tough. It's it's a sacrifice, but obviously it's for a good cause. I'm not trying to play a martyr, but it's tough to get a lot else done while you're planning in the NES Marathon before the week of forget it besides this podcast because uh, it doesn't take that much to do, but forget putting out anything major at the time. It's just uh, tough. Lots of phone calls to sponsors, things like that, getting things set up. But again, uh, check out the NES Marathon. Um, I'll probably put this out, this podcast out the weekend of, uh, at least, at least this segment out the weekend of, so you can re- be reminded to go visit it at nesmarathon.com and your donation is tax deductible. 100%. Remember that, uh, all proceeds go towards the children's marital network. And thank you for supporting this six year seventh marathon. And don't worry about me. I'll survive. I'll survive. First, I was afraid I was petrified. What? Uh, this is at freckle. Freckle underscore Brown. With NES, SNES, and N64 peaking, do you think the price of next generation consoles will start to rise? <sighs> Complicated question. I wish Ian was here for this one. Um, I do think they're peaking. I do think that. So then at that point, does that mean that because they're peaking, it all depends on this. If, if most game collectors are only focusing on certain consoles, in theory, should not bleed over into other consoles. If people are fed up with the high prices of, say, 
the Super Nintendo and they think the GameCube is cheaper, so they want to just go and collect that, then yes, it'll have an effect. It'll affect. But if they're peaking, that means they're going to start to come down, though. So if game prices start to come down on NES, Super Nintendo, and N64, in general, not all, then the other consoles, there shouldn't be an effect there, right? So I've, I've seen a much bigger effect when there's a lot more completionist collectors. Pardon the pun, Gerard. Um, when there's collectors that want to, get, want to get every NES game, when they're done, they usually then find another console to prey on, whether it's TurboGrafx-16, like I did when well, I had it as a kid, or Sega Mass System, had it as a kid, or what have you. So maybe there's a guy out there who wants to collect his 16-bit games, go from Super Nintendo to Sega Genesis. And then Sega Genesis prices have started to rise the past year, year and a half. Uh, so that could be happening there. So I don't know if it's, it's, it's people being forced to collect consoles they don't like because they're cheaper. I don't see that happening in general because even though there's a lot of shelf collectors and people that won't play their games, you want to collect the system that you either grew, grew up with in general or have a fondness for. And it's not like I see collectors not affording NES to all of a sudden go start collecting PS2. Does that make sense? Or PS1 even. I don't think I don't see that happening. I think they'll just grin and bear it and pick and choose what they can or stay within the current console generation. So if they can't afford uh, I don't know, a Super Nintendo game, uh, maybe they'll go for a, you know, a, a chunk of the Genesis library because at least that's in the same time period. Does that make sense? Maybe. I don't know. But I will say this. Uh, the peaking of prices or a, a potential bubble might lead for a few people to come back into it that were out. So maybe they'll come back from collecting a different console, if they exist, going back from collecting a console that they were on the side for and come back to their main love. Who knows? I just haven't seen it, and there's no evidence to know either way until it happens. At Brother Knights, thoughts on insuring a game collection. Met Ian on Saturday. What a nice guy. He suggested I submit this. Well, okay, then I basically have to talk about it. All right. There is collectible insurance out there, specifically for collectibles. Go Google it. I'm not going to push a certain company because I don't know how... Um, I, I'm not sure how ones are more reputable than others. I have no idea. I just don't. Um, but do your own research. Now, there's collectibles could encompass stamps, comics, baseball cards, um, da, 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 hell, Beanie Babies, toys, video games. It's anything. There's not... From, from what I know, there's not a, a specific collectibles insurance that focuses on just like video games, just comics. It focuses on everything. The one I had experience with at Comic-Con um, operated like this. You had to submit to them a list of all your games and the value. Which I guess would be the same for comic books and the value. You submit the list to them and then they'll come back with you know, what's your premium or the amount you pay every year and what's your deductible. So premium is just the cost of insurance. You have car insurance, you have a premium, whatever. You pay 500 a year, 1000 a year. Your deductible is how much you have to pay out of pocket before coverage kicks in. So when it comes to cars, if you get into a car accident and your deductible is $1,000 and you have $2,000 of damage, uh, you're going to pay $1,000 and then it kicks in. So basically get $1,000 uh, from that. If you... Uh, have a $5,000 deductible in health insurance, you have $10,000 in cost, 
you got to pay the first 5000 You then get 10000 So it's basically a $5,000 uh, to you at the end. Uh, out of all that. And 5000 out of your pocket. So that's how deductibles work. So you obviously want to get a lower deductible. Then your coverage might not be as good. Blah, blah, blah. Deductibles and premiums vary based upon things about like uh, the value of your, of your collection. You know, your history, if you have any safeguards, do you have any in a bank stuff in a bank vault? If you if you own a car, which what's your driving record? You know, things like that. Where do you live, the value of your home, how much money you make? There's a lot of factors that they spit into a calculator and get spit out. You know, that's basically what happens. Um so there you don't have to go out and get specific collectibles insurance if you don't want to. Because if you own a home, own a condo, you have what's called homeowner's insurance, which will cover damages to your place or anything inside of it. But now the value of that depends upon your policy. So if I own a $25,000, uh, say, say my homeowner's insurance has $25,000 for, for personal items. That'll include everything from computer, TV, couch, or my video games. That's a personal item. So if the whole place goes up in flames... I can get twenty five thousand maximum back for all that, but obviously, if my game collection is worth a hundred thousand, then I'm at a loss. So you can get a rider or extra, you know, sort of a asset insurance for for your collectibles or your or your uh, personal items. You can easily do that. Absolutely, you can do that. Um, just what will the cost be? And would a regular insurance company, like for homeowner's insurance, like going to Progressive or going to Liberty Mutual, will they have the expertise of a separate collectibles insurance company? That's that's the question. Either way, you have to really document when you have. Uh, which I what I do is recommend an Excel spreadsheet. Keep track of everything there, um, and then photograph your high ticket items. Hell, take video. The good news with me is that everything's documented. Uh, my collection is documented online. Hell, I was on a cable TV show for two of my higher, higher uh, priced items. Uh, you know, so that's documented what I own. So you got to be careful, though, too, with insurance because there's replacement uh, value and the actual item value, what you paid for it. You want to make sure that your insurance is your replacement value. Because if you bought a rare game for $10 and it's worth 1000 insurance doesn't really help there if you're just going to get what you paid for it, not the replacement value. So be very careful with that when you're looking at your insurance. Be very careful of that. By the way, if you're a renter, there's also renter's insurance. If you if you rent like an apartment or rent a home, so that operates pretty much the same as homeowners insurance. So it doesn't matter. So you know you'll have personal, uh, you know, personal uh, possession, personal belongings uh, to be covered there too. So that's perfectly fine. Uh, it's perfectly fine there. So it's up to you. Uh, shop around. Ask your insurance company. Um, what's what is needed to cover something like a video game collection? Ask if they're going to be required to have an itemized list of everything. In, in the very worst case, I'm guessing if, if you value your collection at like a quarter million, they might have some adjuster come out and take a look at it and document it. Like they're, they're going to have to. They're going to they're not going to just trust that you have a, a half million dollar collection and then oh uh, a mysterious fire happens and then they, they owe you half a million bucks. You know, so they might have to have an adjuster come. come. Collectibles insurance. Again, look into that separately. That might be a higher value. Again, if you're already paying homeowner's insurance, you don't want to pay a separate one. It might be more costly, but if you have a lot of money into your collection, it might be worth it. it. might be worth it to have that extra $400 premium that year, uh, every year if you can afford it. It's up to you. Very, very worst-case scenario, there's always that nice safety deposit box 
for your very, very, very high ticket items. Like I keep my NWC cart, not at my home, but in the bank. <laughs> so I wish I could jam my M82 demo unit into the, into that uh, safety deposit box, though. Wish I could do that. <laughs> I guess you could also look into uh, rental, you know, storage places if they're fire controlled, you know. Uh, but those have been known to get ripped off, though, too. So there's, there's no there's no correct answer. But I'm glad we had this conversation out there in in uh, video game collecting land because it is an important one to have once your collection gro- collection grows. Because if you put tens of thousand dollars into your collection, or even if you have it and it's worth that much, yeah, you don't want to see it go up in flames without getting some money back for it. Final question is from at Cannibal Ferox eighty four. With so many games in reseller hands. Is there more they should be doing to help end speculative markets? That's a strange question because um, resellers are making money because of a speculative market on video games. They are profiting off of it. I'm not saying all sellers are directly, but if there are people hoarding or price manipulating games like Little Samson and you happen to acquire a little Samson, the fact that you can charge $1,000 of it is because of a speculative market. The fact that you can uh, you know, sell rare games for 10 times the value they went for two years ago is because of a speculative market. So I'm not sure why a reseller would want to end that, except for the potential bubble that could be waiting on the other side. So it's sort of a catch-22. And it's also a catch-22 with collectors. Because collectors now, in general, if you're if you're collecting for value, that's what I mean. If you're uh, if you're collecting for value, you have profited at this point off of a speculative market. Even if you bought your games, like I have largely, before uh, the mass speculation has come in the past, let's say three four years since like 2012, 2013, the fact that the value of my collection probably tripled or quadrupled because of that speculative market, I, I'm potentially profiting off of that. So I sell my collection, you know, that's that's the, that's a profit. But I'm not selling my games. Sellers slash resellers are selling games. So they should be careful about price manipulation, and they should be careful about sellers having 30 of a copy of a game or 20, and this is not far-fetched. This stuff happens because at some point there will be a bubble that potentially bursts. And confidence will go down. And the first one to suffer ain't going to be me. With my collection, I've I've been putting together for 20 years. I'm going to be sitting happy if my Danny Sullivan's Indie Heat is worth a dollar next year versus whatever, the 15, 20 it's worth now. I won't fucking care. But that seller out there is going to care. Oh, most definitely. So then it comes a, a, a game of will those sellers leave the market if these games are worth, go back to being worth, you know, 25% of what they are now. Will the, will the uh, speculators get out of the market? You know, they will. It's just how many will, and will they lose? Will they lose their shirt? Because, like we spoke about before, there is a ton, a ton of retro games tied up in in the uh, this you know the seller market right now. When I go to uh, Portland Retro Gaming Expo and I see a seller having five. And this isn't smart for them to do, but having five of like Super Mario RPG stacked up in their case to show you they have five of them. And they're not moving them. They should be priced to move. You don't want to hold on to that. You know, when they have uh, 
you know, six or seven of an uncommon game that they've acquired uh, just sitting there. You got to be careful. You got to move those games. If you don't move those games, prices are going to come down. And it's not always when a price comes down, it starts a chain reaction. But a lot of times, if confidence goes uh, in one seller and they'll start dumping, then other people start dumping uh, and lowering their prices. And then that's a chain reaction overall in the quote unquote hobby. So, but, but what we can do to inspect markets is it's hard to, to ask sellers to, to police each other because they're, you know, it's not, well, they're not thieves, but no honor amongst thieves. Why should they? Uh, or why should they go to another seller they know across town? Yeah, you you shouldn't really be pricing like that. You shouldn't be pricing above eBay because they don't care if that other seller doesn't move their product. They can just lower their cost or, excuse me, lower their price and move it. So what the hell's the point? You know? Um, so it's it's really tough. Uh, it's really t- a tough question. I think buyers, though, have to be more careful and not feeding into the speculation and wait it out. I waited 10 years to get one game that I won't mention right now that costs a lot of money. I waited like about 10 years to get a good price on, on a game, and I finally got it. I didn't give in. you know. And I just removed one person who wants a game from the market pool without paying as much as the, the speculators wanted me to. So I'm happy about that. Be patient. At the end of the day, these are just video games. It, you, they... they Sellers need to sell you their games more than you need to dish out the cash to purchase it. You remember that you have the leverage, you have the power. You can wait. You can always wait. That game's almost always going to be available, except for those few instances where there's like you know NWC where like there's like thirteen of them. And that, if that's the case, well, the seller might have the advantage. But hell, even for a Flintstones dinosaur peak, you can always fucking wait on that. I got to tell you about American Express. Hey, American Express card members, there's never been a better reason to get out and shop small in your neighborhood. Because now through December 31st, you could earn two times your rewards when you shop small with an enrolled American Express card. Learn more and enroll your eligible card today at AmericanExpress.com slash shop small offer. It always feels two times as good to support local stores. And now it's two times as rewarding. Prepaid and corporate cards. Uh, cards issued by other uh, financial institutions, the Plum Card, and certain other cards are not eligible. Reward cap and other terms apply. So get out there and support small businesses and earn some extra reward cash. And prizes. Prizes? No, they do prizes. So this was a CU podcast. It definitely was. Uh, podcast for uh, election night. If I check right now, I can see uh, who won or who they think won. Uh, da 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 uh, who probably won? I don't know. Who cares? Your life's not going to change that much, believe it or not. Uh, it's more important to vote on local and state levels in general. That has a much bigger effect on your life. Hey, we we might be legal by the time I post this. So that's make Frank happy, knowing he's been smoking for 35 years, uh, you know, without. But seriously, though, we have, you know, don't worry. Trump supporters, Clinton supporters, you're going to get through this. Things are going to be fine. The world's not going to end. I promise you. But if it does, you know, you can come over and, and you know raid my NES collection. You can just take what you want. All right, so for Pat Conchie, which is me, uh, follow the CU podcast uh, online. Hopefully Ian gets better. NES Marathon, the weekend of the 12th and 13th at nesmarathon.com. Watch and donate. Uh, UltimateNES.com. You can uh, get a certain NES guidebook. 
And uh, yeah, I'm going to get some dinner and find out who, who's going to be horrifying me the, uh, the least in the next four years. <laughs> we'll see you later.